Church, if you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn in the Scriptures to John chapter 4. We're in our fourth week of this Gather, Grow series. We've said that we gather because of the gospel, we grow in the gospel, and now we want to go with the gospel. We've talked about a dual expression that we are all going to be going after in this church that each of us would be growing in our walk with Jesus and helping others grow as well. This is something that I want us to be able to return to regularly throughout the year. That in our base groups, in our discipleship relationships and conversations, we'll be asking one another both of those questions. First, how and where are you growing spiritually? How is God conforming you to the image of Christ? What what barriers, what sin patterns, what challenges stand in the way of you growing in your walk with Christ? How is God growing you in your head, what you know? How is he growing you in your heart, what you love? And how is he growing you in what you do in your hands? Second, the second question that I want us to be wrestling with with one another is, whom are you helping to grow? Who is it that you're walking alongside to challenge and encourage and, and disciple, to walk with Jesus more closely, more intimately, more faithfully, and more obediently? But as the elders and I were thinking about this, the need for this series, there's one more aspect of Gather, Grow, Go that we believe is absolutely essential to the life of our church, especially right now. And that is that we would all engage in evangelism. Now, at the mention of the word evangelism, all sorts of fear and trepidation come to mind. We have the image of Billy Graham preaching to crusades. We have the image of a weird-looking street preacher preaching and yelling at people as they walk by. We have all sorts of images that come to mind, and unfortunately, none of them are helpful. The word evangelism comes from the Greek word evangelizo, which is a a root verb in the Greek, which literally just means to bring good news. The noun form is euangelion, which is just good news, or as it's most often translated in our English Bibles, the gospel. So to evangelize is to be a good newser. To evangelize is to be a gospeler, a bringer of good news, going with the gospel. That's what we're talking about this morning, going with the gospel. This is an essential element of the Great Commission that we talked about three weeks ago, that we're called upon to go and make disciples of all nations. That, that phrase, go, is a, is a participle. It means as you are going. And, and while that participial phrase does um, suggest to us that, that we have something to do, that we are to go with the gospel, it's more about who we are than what we are to do. We go with the gospel because we are a sent people. We are a going people. And as we go, we go with the gospel. We have been sent. Jesus said in John chapter 15, as he's praying for the disciples on the night that he was betrayed, Father, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them, us, into the world. We go because we've been sent. 
And as we go, we go with the gospel. We go with the message that Jesus lived a life we never could and died a death that we deserved and rose three days later, defeating sin and death for all those who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ for salvation. This is the good news. It is the message that God wants proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And his chosen delivery mechanism is you and I. His chosen delivery mechanism is the church, you and I, and all of us who have come to faith in Christ, those of us who are followers of Jesus. I don't think I really need to demonstrate from Scripture that this is all of our responsibility, but just in case it is unclear We mentioned the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, go and make disciples of all nations. That is a command that's given to disciples. And if you are a disciple of Jesus, you're a follower and a learner of Jesus Christ this morning, that command is given to you as well. Go and make disciples of all nations. Luke put it this way in his gospel in Luke chapter 24. There it's also at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's meeting with the disciples after the crucifixion, after he rose from the dead. He appears to them in the upper room, and he says in that setting, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And who was it that were to do the proclamation of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name? It was the disciples. Not just the disciples of that day, but the disciples of this day. Dr. Luke followed that up in his sequel to that gospel book, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, when he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Who's the you? Who's the you here? It It was the early followers of Jesus, but by way of consequence, it is the followers of Jesus today. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Holy Spirit came upon the followers of that day at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has come upon the followers of Jesus in salvation today. You receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Paul describes it this way in Romans chapter 10. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Praise God, that is the gospel That is the harvest right there. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord for salvation through faith in what he accomplished on the cross will be saved. But then Paul lists a number of questions. How then will they call on him in in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe unless they hear? And how will they hear unless someone preaches? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And then he concludes, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That word preach there is the Greek word we've already already looked at evangelizo how beautiful are the feet of the good newsers how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel to those who desperately need it in second corinthians 5 paul tells us that we are ambassadors for christ we're representing him and that as ambassadors of christ that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation how is that by bringing the gospel which explains reconciliation of sinners back to god this is part of our identity this is who we are as sent people the apostle peter wrote in his first letter 
in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And then he says how we do that. Always being prepared to make a defense. That word make a defense is the Greek word apologiomai, which is where we get our word apologetics. Always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. There is no avoiding the fact that it is the responsibility of every believer in Christ, every follower of Jesus, of that day and this day, to be a missionary and to have a missionary mindset. And that we, when we walk out these doors, we are literally walking into the mission field. That we're ambassadors of Christ, as Paul said. We're representing a king of another nation, our true nation, our true citizenship. And he expects us to be on the lookout for and take advantage of opportunities to provide a defense for the hope that we have in Christ, which is found in the good news. This is an unavoidable command to all believers from our Lord. That as a church, it is his expectation of us, each one of us, And it should be an expectation that we have of one another, that we will grow to be more faithful in our evangelism, looking for and taking advantage of opportunities to give a a verbal explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are literally dying to hear it. Those I'm going to refer to this morning as the lost those within our spheres of influence, maybe even our own home, and probably even within this room, who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope for rescue from what they and we and all of us deserve because of our sin and rebellion against God. Those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ are the lost And they may not know that they're lost. They may not realize that they're lost. And they may not agree with that they're lost. They may not feel that they're lost. But they are lost, not just in this world, but in the next world, beloved. They are the lost. And if that describes you this morning, if you feel the weightiness of that, if you you say, you know what, I haven't professed faith in Jesus Christ, and you recognize that you are part of the lost, And friend, I hope that above everything else that we say today, you hear with clarity that there is a way for the lost to be found. And it is through faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, who came and lived a life that we couldn't, achieved a righteousness that we never could, and died on the cross for sinners like us to be reconciled back to him. If you place your faith in Christ alone, you will be rescued And you will no longer be the lost. You will be the found. But we're going to look at a passage of Scripture this morning in John chapter 4. Where Jesus not only exhorts us to take the gospel to the lost. But he gives us a real life example for how he did it. And we hope to learn from that this morning. So John chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 42. This story occurs at the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's done some ministry there in and around Jerusalem. He's called his first disciples to himself, but now he's leaving that area of Jerusalem and Judea, and he's going up to Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, where a lot of his earthly ministry is going to take place. And on the way, he has this encounter with this woman, this Samaritan woman at the well. 
And so we read about this in John 4, verses 1 through 42. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming, and neither on, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and, are, and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who weeps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I say you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. 
Many Samaritans came from that town, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that he ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, but we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to engage your word. We ask, Father, that you would speak to us from it. Father, that you would bring on us a conviction of our responsibility and our privilege to be your ambassadors. And Father, that you would show us how Jesus accomplished this and how we can accomplish this. We ask, Father, that you would build this passionate fervor in us for the gospel to leave our lips and to land on the hearts and souls of those around us. We ask this in faith, in Jesus' name, amen. There are four distinct sections here. If you're taking notes, uh, the first six verses are really the setting where Jesus is leaving Judea. He's on his way to Galilee, and he passes through the land of Samaria. He comes to a town called Sychar, and he is sitting at the well. In verses 7 through 26, where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning, Jesus has this conversation with a woman who comes to the well to draw water. And then we're going to have a few comments about section 3 and 4. Section 3 is where Jesus meets with his disciples after they come back from getting food. And then we see the the, the harvest of Samaritans in the last section in verses 39 through 42. So in this conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman, we see a real-life picture of going with the gospel. So in particular, what I want us to see are five things that are required of us if we are going to go with the gospel. Number one, going with the gospel requires us to maintain close contact with lost people. It requires us to to be in in, in close contact and have exposure, if you will, to lost people. Most Jews of that day who were traveling from Judea up to Galilee would have done everything that they could to have avoided the land of Samaria and not go through the towns of Samaria because the Jews greatly disliked the Samaritans for a variety of reasons that we don't have time to get into. But the feeling was mutual. Jews and Samaritans did not like one another, which is why the parable that Jesus told in Luke 10 of the good Samaritan is so so startling because it turns out to be the Samaritan, the enemy, who is the most neighborly. So a Jew traveling from Judea to Samaria would would have gone far out of his way to avoid the towns of Samaria so that they didn't have to interact with the Samaritans, but not Jesus. Jesus and his disciples go straight through, take a direct route straight through Samaria, ensuring that they would come into contact, close contact with these Samaritans. He intentionally did something that in that day for people like Jesus would have been countercultural and unexpected and quite unnecessary according to the cultural norms of the day, but it would ensure he did this intentionally to ensure that he would have contact with those Samaritans who had such a such a diluted view of who Yahweh was that it would have been all but unrecognizable to these Jesus followers from Judea. Jesus was infamous for this kind of thing. Luke records in chapter five of his gospel 
that after Jesus called Levi, a tax collector, to follow him and be one of his disciples, Levi threw a party at his house. And who did he invite? He invited his friends, tax collectors and other sinners. And so Jesus went to that house and he, he gathered with the tax collectors and sinners and he ate a meal with them. Something that the religious elite and the Pharisees of that day just were horrified about. That was countercultural to a rabbi and a teacher in that day. It was out of the norm and unexpected, but he did it so that he would have close contact with people who were far from God. In Matthew 4.19, Jesus tells um, some of his early disciples, uh, Peter and Andrew, his brother, who were fishermen. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They were fishers of fish. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Church, if we are going to be a fisher of men, then we have got to get in the water. We cannot stay on the bank. There's a tendency in Christians today to isolate and insulate. The thinking goes that there is a lot of bad out there and I don't want that bad to be in here. And after all, bad company corrupts good character and good morals. So in order to keep the bad from getting in here, I'm just going to isolate myself from the world around me. And may I suggest that is just bad theology. That's just bad theology. Yes, we are to be separate from the world in that we are to not look like the world and act like the world and smell like the world around us, but we are not to isolate ourselves from it. Because remember, again, our identity is that of a sent people. We've been sent to the world. We've been sent to the world with the message of the gospel to bring the light of the gospel into dark places. We've used the analogy of the virus before, that every single person within our sphere of influence is infected with the world's most deadly virus, sin. And we have the cure, and the cure is the gospel The gospel is the only vaccination available to cure the disease of sin, the effects of sin. And we need to get this vaccine out. But church, we cannot inoculate people from a distance. We have to get into their lives. We have to spend time around people who are infected. And we have to spend time with them in our neighborhoods, our our, our workplaces, in our community. We have to spend time with them and have this opportunity to give them this vaccination. So how are you going to maintain close contact with lost people? How's that going to happen in your life? Jesus went out of his way to ensure that his path would take him and require him to encounter those who are far from God. What about you? How are you going to ensure that your life has close contact with lost people? Not just that you know that they live next door, not that you you just know that they work in your same office, but how are you going to have close contact exposure with them? Secondly, going with the gospel requires us to establish a common interest. Look how Jesus did this. His first words were what? Give me a drink. He's sitting by the well, and the woman comes up to draw water. He says, give me a drink. They have a common interest. Water, they're thirsty. They need water from the well. And so what we're hoping for here is that the common interest that we establish will serve as a bridge to, at some point, talk about spiritual things and have a spiritual conversation. 
Our common interest could be in family and kids. It could be in activities and hobbies. It could be simply in shared experiences and shared challenges in our life. But Jesus did this by leveraging the common interest of simply needing to get water from the well. And once that was established, he then sought to arouse spiritual interests. That's what comes next. Third, going with the gospel requires us to arouse spiritual interest. Here, our aim is to raise the level of spiritual curiosity in the lives of those who are around us, that they would be spiritually curious about who we are and what we believe about Jesus and who this Jesus is and what, what is this gospel that we are affirming. Jesus did this in both his actions and his words. He stirred up that curiosity. He did it in his actions simply by speaking with the woman. He was a Jewish rabbi male, and this was a Samaritan immoral woman. Again, very countercultural, very out of the box and unusual, and it piqued her spiritual curiosity. And so she asks of Jesus in verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. We can do this too with our actions. We can live countercultural lives in front of our lost friends. We can let our lives be an example of lives that have been transformed by the gospel. We do this when we choose integrity over expediency in our businesses and careers. We do this when we demonstrate countercultural kindness and calmness and compassion instead of hatred and vitriol and violence. Peter wrote to the churches of Asia Minor in his first epistle to a people who were enduring great persecution. And he said to them, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak of you, not if they speak of you, but when they speak of you as evil, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Church, our lives and our actions are never going to preach the gospel. Okay, We're going to have to open our mouths. But our lives and our actions will either contradict that message and distract from that message, or they will give credibility to it. But Jesus didn't stop with his actions. He also aroused spiritual interest on the part of this woman with his words. In verse 10, he began to talk about this thing he called living water, and that piqued her interest. What is this living water? What are you talking about? Are you better than Jacob, our father? And that led to Jesus talking about the living water that leads to eternal life. And what was her response to that? Sir, give me this water. I want that water. One of the ways that we can arouse spiritual interest in the lives of lost people around us in our spheres of influence is by talking about the effects of the fall that we see all around us in this fallen world. Whether it's natural disasters or the evil that we see every time that we turn on the television, or whether it's just the challenges of of work 
and how hard work is and how challenging it is and how it's hard to provide for our family and raise our children and relate to one another in marriage. We see the effects of the fall all around us and it's very easy and simple to turn a conversation from the mundane into the eternal, from the physical to the spiritual by simply saying, but that's not how God intended it to be which could lead to a conversation about the fall and the effects of sin, how with the original creation all was good, but then man sinned and sin entered the world and it affected everything. And we see the effects of the fall all around us, which of course leads to a conversation about how God has made a way for things to be returned to their original state and that that way that God made is Jesus Christ himself, arousing spiritual interest raising the level of spiritual curiosity and then fourthly going with the gospel requires us to allow for for a conviction of sin note there that the woman after learning about this living water that leads to eternal life she asks him for it she says give it give it to me i want that living water and jesus doesn't pull out the four spiritual laws and say well here's how you do it Instead, he says, go get your husband. Why does he do that? Why, why didn't he just, it's like the harvest. It's like, how do I receive Jesus? How do I have this living water? How do I have this eternal life? And he says, go get your husband. Why does he do that? It's because he knows that that will lead to a discussion about her sin and her need for a savior. You see, people need to see that they are lost before they are interested in talking to you about how they can be found. They need to understand the bad news. The bad news that their sin leads them, is going to lead them to judgment. And that they stand under the wrath of God because of their rebellion against God. They need to see and and, and realize that bad news before they have a hunger and a thirst for the good news. But it is not our job to bring a conviction of sin. A discussion about Jesus dying for our sins is incomplete without personalizing it for them and and, and them realizing and coming to grips with their own sinfulness. But friend, it's not our job to bring a conviction of sin. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. It's not our place to condemn and convict. Our place is to say, yes, that is sin. And yes, that sin puts you in a very dangerous predicament with God. And there's nothing that you can do to remove the stench of that sin before a holy God. You need someone else to remove that sin. And I can't do it for you because I've got my own sin. You need someone who is sinless to remove that. You need God to remove that. And that's what Jesus has done. That's our job. It's not our job to condemn them and uh, convict them of their sin. That is the job of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit must bring that conviction. And when he does, then and only then, will they be ready to hear the way of rescue through Jesus Christ. And then finally, going with the gospel requires us to keep the focus on Jesus After hearing about this living water that Jesus offers, the woman tries to change the subject. She begins to talk about the location of of, uh, appropriate worship. 
the Samaritans say that we, we should worship Yahweh on this mountain. But you Jews talk about worshiping Jesus on, or worshiping Yahweh on the mountain that's in Jerusalem, on the mount there. So which is it? Which mountain is it? And Jesus wasn't sidetracked by this. Instead, he patiently answered her question. He didn't avoid it. He didn't deflect. He dealt with the question. He answered the question, but he didn't allow the question to sidetrack him him from the main point, the main issue. And he quickly turned the conversation back to the original subject, which is, who is he? And what is it that he was offering her? When we're met with objections to sharing the gospel, we too need to be careful about being sidetracked by smoke screens. You know what a smoke screen is, right? it's It's a small explosion that provides a lot of smoke in order to hide the location of the troops. It's usually used with a a smoke grenade. Well, smoke screens are when someone raises an objection about an unrelated subject in order to deflect from the main point, in order to deflect from talking about Jesus, in order to deflect from talking about their sin and their need for rescue, in order to deflect from talking about the gospel. So, for example... If you're sharing the gospel with me and I object and I, I say, yeah, but I can't believe in this Jesus guy because there are so many Christians, they are so hypocritical. That's a common objection, right? Now, we ought to handle that. We ought, we ought to be able to handle that, but not allow that to sidetrack us from the person's need for rescue from sin and death. That's a smokescreen. Deal with it, but don't let it sidetrack you from the main focus. The main focus is Jesus, his cross, and his resurrection. That is the core message of the gospel. And we need to keep the spotlight on Jesus, who he is, the life that he lived for us, the death that he died in our place, and the significance of his resurrection three days later. Keep the focus on Jesus. Well, I don't know about all this church stuff. I've been hurt by churches in the past. That shouldn't have happened, and I'm sorry that that happened. But what about Jesus well, yeah, but you know, the Christians that I know, they really aren't any different than everybody else around me. and That's not good. I hate that that's been your experience. But what about Jesus? Well, you know, there's so much evil in the world today. And I don't know if I can believe in a God who, who allows so much evil to occur today. Well, you know, that's not the way it was in the beginning before man sinned against God. So what about Jesus for you? Keep pointing them back to Jesus. In the, in, in the story here of the Samaritan woman, Jesus quickly returned the conversation from the location of worship to the object of worship, which is him. And he revealed himself as the Messiah. I, am, I who am speaking to you am he. I am the Christ. We too must keep the focus of our conversations on Jesus, his cross, and his resurrection. So five requirements for us to go with the gospel We need to maintain close contact with lost people. Don't isolate and insulate, but live out our identity as sent people, as Jesus called us to be. Secondly, establish a common interest. Build a relationship of trust around a common interest of some sort. Third, arouse spiritual interest through our actions and our words. Raise their level of spiritual curiosity. Fourth, allow for conviction of sin by addressing it not avoiding it. Remember the woman caught in adultery. Jesus said, he who is without the first sin cast the first stone. But woman, go and sin no more. He called it sin. 
but he was gracious. So address it, but leave room for the Holy Spirit to bring the conviction that only he can bring. But most importantly, keep the focus on Jesus. Keep the focus on the gospel, his life, his cross, and his resurrection. Before we move on, briefly, I want to mention a couple of observations about Jesus' conversation with the disciples. They had gone off to get food in this story. Um, In the intermediate time, he has this conversation with this woman, and then they come back after having lunch. And they find Jesus talking with this woman at the well. And a couple of things I want us to note about that that I think are important. First, they marveled at it. We're told that they marveled when they saw Jesus speaking with this woman of Samaria. This just wasn't done. Jewish rabbis and teachers just didn't speak with women at all, much less women of Samaria. And so when they see Jesus speaking with this woman at the well, they marvel, they wonder, what in the world is Jesus doing? This just puts an exclamation mark on the point that we made earlier from this chapter, and that is that Jesus was not concerned at all about cultural, non-biblical boundaries and norms. He regularly stepped outside of the box of the typical Phariseeism of the religious elites of that day in order to bring the good news of the kingdom to the people around him. I don't know what specific application this has for you in your own efforts to be faithful in evangelism, but I would encourage you to be ready and willing to step outside the box. Step outside the box of unbiblical cultural expectations and norms in order to bring the hope of the gospel of Jesus to those who desperately need it. Secondly, we see here that they're, they're more concerned about lunch than they are about proclaiming the gospel. They had gone off to get food. When they return, they're worried about Jesus. They're worried that he had not eaten. They say, Rabbi, eat. He says, I have food that you don't know about. And they're like, who gave him some lunch? Did somebody give him some food? And he says, no, 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 you don't understand. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. We're just like Jesus' disciples many times in this regard. We tend to focus on the temporary and lose sight of the eternal. We tend to lose sight of what is most important because what is temporary is what we see and is right in front of us in tangible terms. And we lose sight of what God is really doing in the spiritual world, in the souls of people all around us. It's so easy to get caught up in the cares of this world and lose sight, literally, literally to lose sight, to to be blinded, to the things that really matter in the lives of people all around us who are headed for a Christless eternity. And we have a roadmap that leads to a much different eternity. But Jesus knew that it was likely of his that, that his disciples were had lost sight of that. They had lost sight of that reality. And so he says, Look, lift up your eyes. And see, behold, look at the fields. They are white for harvest. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. He wants them to see it. 
When, when wheat is ready to be harvested, it, it turns kind of a, a light brown, almost golden color compared to the dark green that it begins with. It almost seems as if it is white. It means it's ready. It's ready to be harvested. And apparently Jesus, had he uses the, the, the harvest-ready fields that are nearby as an analogy to teach his disciples of the urgency of the harvest. Here come the people from Samaria. They've been sown the seed of the gospel. Now it's time to harvest. Now it's time to reap the harvest and bring it in. And that's exactly what happened. We learned in the last few verses of the passage that we read that that many believed because of the woman's testimony. And Jesus spent a couple of days there and many more believed, not just because of what she said, but because of what he said as well. Church, may that be our experience May we heed the words of Jesus and lift up our eyes that is so commonly and so often uh, mired in the day-to-day mundane and the day-to-day tangible stuff that's right in front of us. May we lift up our eyes and see that the field is white for harvest. It's ready for harvest, and that's what God has called us to do. I want to close with uh, a number of applications and I want these to be things that, that um, you and I both wrestle with um, over the coming weeks. The first, probably the most important, and that is that if there is a lack of faithfulness in evangelism in your own life, may I suggest to you that that is a sin. And as with all sin, we are to repent. And may I just be honest with you and say this is something that God has been leading me to repent of. I want to ask your forgiveness for not being the kind of pastor who is leading in this. I read and I hear talks on evangelism in churches and you can't lead the people where you're not going yourself. And I have spent time with the Lord in agony that I'm not growing in this area of my life. But I desire for Jesus to change me. I want him to grow me in this. I I, I live a life surrounded by found people, both in my work and school and just the various areas where God has me, and that needs to change. I need to live different rhythms of my life so that I might be around lost people more. And I can't use the pandemic as an excuse not to reach my neighbors with the gospel. I need to be creative and think about that. And so I intend to. I intend to talk with my base group and ask them to hold me accountable to this and help me think of creative ways to, to maintain close contact with lost people. What about you? What about you? Do you need to re- repent of unfaithfulness in this area and ask Jesus to make you more faithful? Secondly, be praying for lost people. The reality is evangelism is simply sharing the hope of the gospel. We can't save anybody. Only God can do that. And so this is spiritual business. And if we're not praying for our lost friends and family and coworkers, then we're, we're literally just spitting in the wind. We need to ask the Lord to prepare the soil and then to water it after we've sowed the seed. You've got in your seats... Every single one of you, when you came in this morning, a little bookmark 
where we're encouraging you, beginning next Sunday, so you've got a week to fill this out, to pray for five lost people for five minutes for five weeks leading up to Resurrection Day, Easter. And so take that bookmark and, and, and ask the Lord, Lord, who is it within my sphere of influence who is far from you, whom you, have, you are giving me an opportunity to live out and speak the gospel into their lives? Pray for them. Pray for them for five minutes a day for the next five weeks beginning next Sunday. And then you take one of our, 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 our invite cards and you invite them and you ask them to come. Whether they come or not, that has begun a spiritual conversation with them. And you can take advantage of that to begin talking about the hope that you have in Christ. Just a simple little tool to help us to remember that we need to be praying for God to move and give us those opportunities and give us the boldness to take advantage of them. Thirdly, look for and take advantage of those gospel opportunities when they do come. Opportunities to establish a common interest, to arouse spiritual interest in your conversations with them and then to keep the focus on Jesus and the gospel. Be willing to step out in faith. Be willing to step out in boldness. Be willing to be who you are, a sent person, an ambassador. Be willing to be countercultural and not be boxed in by unbiblical cultural norms. But get the gospel out. Fourth, get trained. Maybe you're like, I don't know. I don't know what the gospel is first, and I don't know how to explain the gospel. That's okay. That's okay. We'll, we'll, t- we'll walk you through that. And we're going to have a class coming up on that later this spring, how you learn, not just learn how to share the gospel, but you will share the gospel. Uh, the, the guys who are, who are putting that class together, I've told them the most important part of that is a practicum where you actually share the gospel and then you come back and you talk about how that went. And so get trained. And then last, certainly not least, celebrate faithfulness in evangelism. This is something as a church we want to do more and more, both on Sunday morning and in our members' meetings and in our base groups, to celebrate those among us who are faithfully trying to share the gospel. It's not about people walking across a line of faith. That is awesome. And when God does that, we celebrate through baptism. But we're talking about here is simply celebrating and marking those times when we are faithful in doing what God has called us to do, which is to proclaim the gospel. Because God is glorified in the proclamation of the gospel, and it's something that we should celebrate. And so I would encourage you, even in your base groups, as you talk about trying to share the gospel and praying for those who, with whom God is leading you to share the gospel, that, that when there's a, an effort that you celebrate, that, that you mark that, and that you see that is what we're after. Regardless if someone comes to faith in Christ or not, the reality is they heard the gospel and God is, proclaimed in the pro, is glorified in the proclamation of the gospel. So celebrate those small wins and see if God does not ignite in you and your fellow base group members a passionate fervor to go with the gospel for the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this picture of how Jesus engaged this woman in the context of everyday life. Uh, This wasn't a particular mission trip that he signed up for and went on. He was just traveling from one town to the next. 
And in the context of that, Lord, you, you have shown us how we too can go with the gospel. And Father, as we, as my brothers and sisters and myself, consider being faithful in this, <clears throat> we need your help. Because <clears throat> there are many of us who, are, who wrestle with fears about this. The fear of rejection, the fear of man, whatever those fears are. But those fears simply betray idols that we're holding on to. And so God, would you come against those idols? In the name of Jesus, would you reveal them and tear them down in our hearts and lives so that we would desire nothing more than to see Jesus magnified through the proclamation of that good news about him. We do pray for fruit. Father, we ask that you would save people. We ask that you would rescue our friends, our coworkers, those in our community. But most importantly, Lord, we ask that you would be glorified as we seek to be faithful in this task that you've given to every single one of us. We commit to this, and we pray for faithfulness in this. In Jesus' name, amen.